uh, I'm going to preach to you tonight about generations and the church. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2. To Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did. As without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dealt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Generational churches. We see this demonstrated here in this passage very clearly, a generational emphasis. It begins as Paul refers to Timothy as his own dear son. Now, Timothy was not his biological son. He was a spiritual son. As far as we know, uh, Paul and Timothy were not related as far as blood relations are concerned. Uh, Their connection was spiritual. And uh, uh, Paul had had a profound influence on Timothy. And uh, so much so and so deep and strong was their relationship that Paul became a kind of spiritual father to him. You might remember, you should remember, Timothy's father was not a believer. He was a Greek. Uh, As far as we know, he never became a believer in Christ. He was not a believer in God. Uh, No evidence that uh, Timothy's uh, biological father uh, was ever uh, there to support him or help him uh, in the development of his faith. But Paul was there for him, and he became his spiritual father and mentor So there is a father and son relationship that is mentioned. The next thing that we see mentioned is our forefathers. Uh, This is an interesting statement for the Apostle Paul to make because we know that his forefathers, uh, at least in part, would have included the Pharisees who were very much a part of the spiritual leadership that was anti-Christ, anti-Christian, not uh, believers in the gospel and uh, so I think Paul, by speaking of his forefathers, was going beyond them uh, to speak of those uh, ancients in Israel who served God and followed God in faith in the days of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and all of the others, many of the prophets uh, who followed God and served Him and served Him faithfully. Certainly not all of the Jewish people would have been lumped into that lump of people who rejected Jesus Christ. Many of them lived and died for their faith. If you want to see a list of them, read Hebrews chapter 11. Long, long list of those who lived in faith and who died in faith. And so Paul very obviously was speaking of these people and he considered then that heritage that went beyond uh, even his own uh, personal experience to speak of his forefathers in the faith. So certainly spiritual fathers, uh, that's in the text, then forefathers. But not only do we see a patriarchal expression, but we also see a matriarchal expression. Uh, I saw this faith in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. 
And so not only were, were there, uh, is there a patriarchal emphasis of fathers and forefathers, uh, but also that matriarchal emphasis, the work of, of women in raising up children and in establishing faith in young people and in other women that very prominently recognized in this passage, certainly included in the multi-generational concept Paul presents here in this church, in this passage. Today's trend in churches is very much mono-generational, and you see that demonstrated everywhere. But there's a problem with a mono-generational church as opposed to a multi-generational church. A mono-generational church really only has two options. Either the people are going to get old and get married and start having kids, in which case they become a multi-generational church, or they die. Uh, that's really the only two options that are available. If they continue, if the church continues and uh, they continue to grow and uh, uh, get married, have offspring, one of these days, just think about it, I can look around my, I'm not going to call any names from this pulpit tonight, but I can look in all kinds of directions and, and see a lot of monogenerational churches, uh, not only in our community, but in other communities around us, uh, where they're going to be 40 years from now. Uh, you know, and you just you just wonder. Uh, obviously, if they continue, uh, they're going to be filled with a multi generational congregation. We're already there. In that sense, I guess we could consider ourselves trendy. <laughs> we're we're ahead of the game uh, because we are already a multi generational church. We are committed to this, and we have been. I can't speak for everything, but uh, you were that way when I came here, and you are still that way today. And we do this by design. We believe that the Bible model is of multi-generational churches. Now, if you look at us, it may seem that we are heavy in one direction, uh, and that is the older folks. Uh, and I'll admit to being a part of that crowd, obviously. Uh, I'm not inclined to deny the obvious truth. Okay, I see it. If I can't even see myself in the mirror, I can see my hands and they tell me the story. Uh, I've got uh, old man skin and uh, age spots on my hands. I sometimes look down and I wonder, how did I get my dad's hands? I, I don't I, just all of a sudden they appeared. You know how it is. I'm not going to deny that I'm a part of the older generation. And quite frankly, I am very, very thankful for all of the folks in this church who are my age and even older. Thank God for you. We're glad to have you. And uh, we're glad that you are part of this church family. Uh, we might think, well, we've got way, well, we need to look a little more carefully. Uh, a lot of our older adults are singles. Many of them, like myself, are empty nesters. So there's only two in our household. Uh, but we combine that to some of our younger families who have two, three, four kids, and you include all of those, and suddenly the numbers begin to balance a little bit. may still be a little bit inclined toward the older folks. That simply means that we need to work harder to attract younger people. Uh, we also need to work harder in order to reach and influence older people. I don't know about you. I hope you can. I hope you can identify with the statement I'm about to make. I can rejoice 
over the salvation of a 70-year-old every bit as much as I can rejoice over the salvation of a 7-year-old. And vice versa. They're both people who are saved by the grace of God. They both need Jesus Christ regardless of what their age is. Regardless of what their background is or where they're from. They all need Jesus Christ. They all need the gospel. That they need more. Uh, yes, they need the gospel. Yes, they need salvation. But the will of God is that people would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Uh, which means they need to be taught, discipled, and instructed in biblical truth. Uh, having somebody saved may only take about five minutes. But you can spend a lifetime teaching people what the Bible says. And will never, ever learn it all. And the interesting thing is, as we get older, of course, we begin to forget stuff. So a lot of things we used to know, we have to learn all over again. It's a never-ending process. Never goes away. I kind of chuckle sometimes when some of our senior adults come by and say, well, I'd never heard that before. And I say that, I kind of chuckle because I'm thinking, yeah, you probably did. You probably did. I've probably preached it before and don't even remember preaching it before. I tell you, I'm not, we've got to laugh a little bit with this. We need to work harder to reach older folks, and we need to work harder to reach younger folks. Uh, but I'll tell you, we do face some challenges in this, and I want to talk with you about it for a few moments before we get back to our text. Um, there are some things, some cultural trends afoot that make this whole concept of a multi-generational church more difficult. And they make it difficult for us to reach new people. Uh, one of the things going on in our culture is the loss of truth, or perhaps I should say the abandonment of truth. And by truth, I'm talking about truth with a capital T. I'm talking about the truth of God, the truth of Scripture. In this, we are speaking of the inspiration and authority of the Word of God where we look at the Scripture then as a church family, and this is for us a non-negotiable, we look at the Scripture as being the inspired and inerrant Word of God. We believe it all, though I've already said we may not know all of it, none of us would make that claim, but we believe that it is all true and that it is all authoritative. It is our standard, uh, the Word of God. This is, this is what we stand upon. Uh, I remember years ago there was a prominent uh, megachurch, a very large church in America that opened all their services with a pastor standing up with a Bible in his hand and he would lead the church in the recitation of a Bible pledge. He would say, this is my Bible. I have what it says I have. I am what it says I am. I can do what it says that I can do. And they always left out something then that I thought that they should have gone on and said. And, and that is that I shouldn't do what it tells me not to do. <laughs> Uh, they, they never put that in their Bible pledge, but uh, if I would have written their Bible pledge, that's what I would have put in. Uh, you know, I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do, and I shouldn't do what it tells me not to do. I mean, that is, isn't that the essence of the authority of Scripture for us? It tells us who we are. It tells us then how we are to live. It identifies for us what our spiritual resources are. And it also tells us what to avoid. 
Uh, that is the inspiration and authority of Scripture. And by standing there, we come up against a culture very quickly that has abandoned that concept of truth in general, but especially that what they consider to be an ancient book written by men that has nothing to do with our culture should not be given the right to tell us what to do or should be considered authoritative. They ridicule it. You know they do. Uh, they mock the whole concept. And so part of our problem is, has to do with the cultural trend of the abandonment of a standard of truth at all in face of an individual kind of morality where people can do whatever they want and be whatever they want uh, as opposed to biblical truth. Uh, we also have a struggle with the loss of young people. Uh, study after study has shown this has been unchanged the entire time that I've been pastoring churches. About two-thirds of the young people who grow up in our church are going to leave the church during their college years. Two-thirds. Two-thirds. One-third of those are going to come back once they get married and start having kids. But about two-thirds are going to drop out. If you went through your college years and didn't drop out, God bless you. God bless you. You're a part of what Jesus would have called the few, the few of the few. Uh, broad is the gate, he said, and narrow is the way, and few there be that find it. Uh, the, the, the laborers, the harvest is plenteous then, but the laborers are few. The few of the few. That's what Jesus described long ago. Um, though many people, young people, are coming back to church then after they get married and start raising their own kids, they may not and likely won't return to the church they grew up in. Uh, there was a time when churches uh, had a committed or core membership that would be here most any service or at least a couple of uh, times a week or, or two, three, four times a month. And uh, there was a large then membership that kind of fluctuated. They'd be in and out, they'd be here. And then on Easter and Christmas every year, they all showed up at once. And we had a huge crowd. Uh, but you've noticed that we don't really have that huge crowd anymore. Um, it, it's happening. It's happening in churches all over as more and more people are just moving away. And there's more and more options, more and more ways to go. And uh, so we've lost uh, a lot of young people and many of them are not coming. I'm talking about some of the things that make it difficult for us. But it, it not only is it the loss of youth, but it's also the loss of mature. There's a lot of older people who are leaving the church. And there's several times when people are inclined to leave. One of them is once they get their kids raised. If their only reason for coming to church was to take their kids to church, once their kids are raised, there's a lot of them quit. Uh, a lot of times it also comes about when people retire. And, uh, you know, they've done their job and now they're wanting to travel and do. And so we, uh, churches lose a lot when people retire. There's bad news here. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just trying to give you these things very quickly tonight. Uh, we also see a loss of church identity that we struggle with. And this is uh, something that's happening and a trend that uh, has developed. We'll have to see whether it survives COVID or not. 
but this happens as younger families become more and more involved in other things during the critical formative years, the teenage years. And uh, if they choose sports over church or choose other things over church during those critical teen years, uh, then um, it's, it's going to be difficult to expect that those young people will maintain a dedication to Christ and to the church and serving the church once they reach adulthood. Um, if you're under 40 years old tonight, and many of you may be, some of you are, if you're under 40, you have never lived in a time where you felt you were a part of the majority in your country. Never. If you're under 40, you have always felt as far as your faith is concerned, that you are in the minority. And uh, that people were somewhat skeptical of your faith, looking down on you. You've always felt inclined to defend yourself and to defend your faith uh, because you faced a lot of skepticism and a lot of antagonism uh, as a Bible-believing Christian, we've already talked about that. We are people then who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe in the new birth. We accept the truth of Scripture. We believe in the authority of Scripture. If you're under 40, you have never lived in a country where you felt like you were in the majority. Now, I understand Cabot, uh, Arkansas is a little different. Um, but I'm not sure you've even felt that way in Cabot, America. Uh, at least in the last few years. On the other hand, if you are over 40 years old, you grew up in a time when your faith was overwhelmingly in the majority. And where your faith as Christians who believed the Bible and accepted the authority of the Bible was working very hard to maintain that majority position. They were fighting against the things that uh, were viewed as being a threat to this or being anti-Christian or anti-Bible or anti-biblical truth. And of course that's changed and uh, it's changed dramatically over the course of our lifetime. But while uh, folks under 40 tend to view themselves and their faith as being a people who somehow have to present Christianity in a way that can overcome this natural antagonism. We're in the minority. We're trying to defend ourselves. On the other hand, it's possible for those over 40 to totally consider themselves as kind of a replica of a bygone age that needs to be preserved. And the church can become that. Uh, where we maintain the traditions of the past, we act like that things somehow are still the same when they've radically changed. And... Um, it becomes then a kind of a monument uh, to that time when we were in the majority. Uh, younger people share the same experiences. You can connect well with each other because you're living the same life. Unfortunately, folks, you also share the same inexperiences. You know the same things, but you don't know the same things. Uh, a lot of things that you're doing and that's being done in our culture today are completely experimental. We've never done it before. No generation in history has ever handed their kids one of these and given them unrestricted access to play games on it. No other generation has ever done this before. 
What's it going to do to our kids? We don't know. We'll all find out together. It's an experiment. Uh, you're doing a lot of things, young people, younger parents. You're, you're doing a lot of things that are experimental. On the other hand, we have a large group of people who've raised their kids. They've done it. Uh, they've built their lives. They have experience to share of both what worked and what doesn't work. I'm trying tonight to, to show you some of the cultural trends that are challenged to us as a church. And yet, I still believe wholeheartedly that churches need to be, and they need to glory in being multi-generational. I go back to Acts chapter 2. You've heard me preach this many times before, where Simon Peter on the day of Pentecost preached from the prophet Joel and said, It shall come to pass in the last days that your young men would see visions, your old men would dream dreams. And if that's not talking about the enthusiasm of the young combining with the experience of the old to do a great evangelistic work, then I don't understand what it could mean. I mean, that, that's obvious to me what the text is all about, why Simon Peter preached it, that young people and old people were going to come together, and as a result of that, it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There can be a great evangelistic work that goes on. I think instinctively, if we find ourselves walking into a congregation, a church, and we look around and there's nobody there over 30, we feel something almost instinctively, something may be a little out of line. If we walk into a church where there's nobody there under 60, we feel the same way. Uh, we need to provide a way for people, young and old, to do as we have done for years and years and years. And I think part of that is going to come to us and how we can recapture this, how we can preserve it, how we can enhance it as a church body uh, is found right here in our text in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Fathers, forefathers... Grandmothers, mothers, older women teaching younger women, older men teaching younger men. It's right here. I also think it's important for us to acknowledge the fact that Paul speaks of his forefathers. This is something that's almost becoming a lost concept in, in the 2020s in America today, and that is a view of our forefathers. In fact, so many times we're so busy uh, beating up on our forefathers that uh, we forget that we are a product of what they did. I'm not going to try to tell you that every uh, one of our forefathers here in the United States of America was perfect or that everything they did was perfect. It was not. Um, but hey... They've built a pretty good country, I'd say, uh, that's served the test of time, and we've made corrections, we've made mistakes, we've made changes. Here we are. But it's not so much uh, that political forefathers or where we are as a nation that I'm concerned about, even though that, I think, is part of it. That is our acknowledgement of it as a church. Uh, I'm very grateful for the ministry of Ralph Cunningham. I knew Ralph Cunningham. Uh, we weren't close. We weren't buddies. We didn't play golf together. I doubt Ralph played. Uh, you know, we, uh, I, I, I knew Brother Ralph. 
and I know that he came here and, and, and started a mission church out of Faith Baptist Church in North Little Rock, therefore our name, Faith Baptist Church in Cabot. I, I know that. I know that happened. I know Brother B.C. Hudson. Is B.C. There he is, sitting right back there. Uh, B.C. Hudson is still here, one of the former pastors of this church. Brother Brent Summerhill, a good friend of mine. And uh, I know Brother Brent and how he worked and served and led out in the building of this building. Uh, we acknowledge the work of our forefathers. I certainly acknowledge that. Beyond just your pastors, we look at staff members. I couldn't even begin to call all the names of all the people who have served you here in church and staff position. You know, you know better than I do many of many of the people who have lived and died and serve faithfully in this church. And this church then exists as a product of multi-generations of people who have lived and died and faithfully served God. And now it's here. It's on us. It's... But we stand here as a product of what they have done. But there's more. Most of us uh, can look back on forefathers in our family who were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I can go back several generations in my family. Uh, they were all Baptist, and, uh, and now I'm one. And I'll, I'll die one. I, I figure it's, uh, uh, that's, that's, or I'll, I'll go out with a shout. I'm not going to stop being a Baptist until Jesus calls me home. And when I get to heaven, I'm going to be a part of his church. That's what the Bible says. I'll be a part of that one great gathering up there. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Uh, but until then, I'll, I'll be a Baptist. Uh, you say, well, you'll still be a Baptist. Oh, I, I'm not going to make that claim. Local churches, folk, are, are for this day and time. Uh, when we get to heaven, it's, it's going to be different in so many, so many ways. But we're, we're talking then about our forefathers. And that, that's something that we need to discuss as well. Having a heritage um, passed along from... One family to another to another. All of that's in our text. And so tonight uh, we're going to spend a little time with this uh, rather extensive preamble <laughs> that I've given to the message tonight. Uh, I want to talk then briefly about the things that we see in this passage that we can rally around. Uh, folk, this is not truth for octogenarians. It's not true for 80-year-olds. Uh, this is true for all of us, regardless of where you are. These are things that Paul called his son in the faith to do and reaches across all these centuries where that aged apostle Paul, about to die, by the way, 2 Timothy, was calling out to his son in the faith to do. It's his time. This is what you do. It's what we still need to do. I want you to notice in verse 7. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and of love and of a sound mind. I've, I've quoted that passage so much uh, during the uh, pandemic over the last year that y'all are probably tired of hearing me say it. Uh, but here it is, and it's right here in our text, and it's one of the things that, that Paul puts before us, one of those multi-generational concepts. And one of the things then that we rally around, one of the things that drives us, that can 
pull us together. One of our rallying cries is that God has not given us a spirit of fear. If you're in your 70s or 80s tonight, you need to rejoice in that. God doesn't give you a spirit of fear. If you're in your 20s or 30s and raising your kids, you need to rejoice in that tonight. God has not given you a spirit of fear. But as I've told you before, that doesn't mean He's given us a spirit of recklessness. Instead, He gives us power, love, and a sound mind. Three great things to live by. We live, number one, in the power of God. Not of our own power, not by our own strength, but by the power of God. He has given us the incredible power of love to live out. The love of Christ motivates us. The love of Christ constrains us. We love one another. We love the lost. We even love our enemies. We even love liberals. We do. At least we're supposed to. Love your enemies, Jesus said. Love those who despitefully use us. We love people that Jesus died for. That's pretty much everybody. (laughs) Amen? All right. God's given us not a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Wow. God has given us not just our earthly mind, we have the mind of Christ, Paul said. Why? Because the Holy Spirit of God lives in us. We have Jesus Christ in us, and we have His truth in us. And so we don't just look at the world. We look at the world through the lens of Scripture. We look at the world through divine revelation, the Word of God. And so the first thing that draws us together and gives us a a sense of common purpose and direction is God's gift to us. He has not given us a spirit of fear. And oh, how a world needs to see Christians standing tall with confidence. Then there is the prevalence of immortality. Verse 8. The prevalence, the primacy I could have said, Of immortality. Look at what he says, verse 8. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel, according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with the holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. (laughs) He has abolished death. You say, well, Brother Rich, I went to a funeral this last week. I know you did. Yeah. Yeah, I preached one just a couple of weeks ago. But Jesus Christ abolished death. How did he do that? Because he lived and died and rose again. He took away the power and the sting of death so that he could say to people, Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Uh, That means that we might close our eyes. This body is going to wear out. This heart may stop beating. I'll close my eyes on this life. But when I do, I'm going to open them up on the face of my Lord Jesus Christ. And so will you if you're a believer in him. 
Death might kill the body, but it can't hurt you. Why? Because Jesus Christ has abolished death. And the prevalence then and the primacy of that truth of immortality gives us what? The ability to stand strong on the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ and not be ashamed of Him. And I know you young people especially, you folks that are still out in the work world and still running business and still in positions uh, of public prominence, I know, I know, I know fully well how tough it is for you. I know the kind of scrutiny that you invite when you proclaim yourself to be a Christian. I know it. I admire you and I pray for you. But the way that we stand strong in our testimony in the world is that we understand the truth of this passage. Uh, God has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling So that we are not ashamed of the testimony of our Lord and we share then in the sufferings for the gospel. Um, I know what it's like when I speak to young people especially and talk to you then about how it's up to you in many ways to try to interact with people your age and influence them for the gospel. I know how difficult that is for you. I know how it puts you on the spot. I know what it can cost you. I know what people say. I know how they act. And yet here it is in our text. This is a cause that we embrace together. Old or young, somewhere in between. We all have that responsibility to not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. He then gives us this deep-seated assurance in verse 12. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. (laughs) Paul wasn't just telling us to do it when he didn't do it. Uh, Listen, they were about to execute him. But he said, what? I'm not ashamed. How would you like to be that guy going out to have your head cut off, but holding your head up high with a smile? How would you like to be that guy? Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. I mean, he wasn't going out with his head down and all embarrassed by what he'd done. He wasn't defiant. I've seen criminals die with defiance. That wasn't defiance. It was joy. I'm not ashamed. I'm not embarrassed. I have nothing to be ashamed of. I'm suffering these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Aren't you glad tonight that you can be 100% confident that Jesus Christ has saved you and he's going to keep you saved? 100% rock solid confidence. I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Boy, if it is up to me to keep it, I'd be in a mess. So would you. But the same Jesus we have trusted to save us is the same Jesus we trust to keep us saved. I am persuaded. We have rock-solid confidence, deep-seated assurance that we're going to spend eternity in heaven with our Lord Jesus Christ gives us a different look on the world, doesn't it? 
There is a divine commitment. Verse 13. Commandment. He said, hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. If you've ever sewed, my mother was a seamstress. She made dresses. Uh, occasionally she made pants, but she was much better at dresses. And I've seen that painstaking way that she'd take those paper patterns, she called them. I guess there might be another name for them. That's what she called them, patterns. Pinned them painstakingly to that fabric, cut them out, sew them together in accordance with the instructions, run them through that machine. Pattern. Stay with the pattern. And that's what Paul told Timothy to do. What he called him to do. It's what he himself had done. You saw it in me. You have heard these from me. And you stay then with the pattern of sound words. I know I preached on this this morning, but uh, I've still got it on my mind. It's right here in the text tonight, so just get a double dose and smile. Uh, Pattern of sound words. There is so much misinformation coming down the pipes today. Listen, we need to ground our attention and our mind, our hearts deeply in the truth of Scripture. Generations, that's those forefathers again, generations have lived and died believing in that old book. That old bloodstained book, the old preachers used to call it, and they called it that for a reason. That book came to us at a very high price. Paid for not just in the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, but in the blood of thousands and even millions of people who died to preserve it. They have lived and died for that old bloodstained book and with it and by it. We must as well. We must hold fast to it. It's the one thing that we can absolutely depend on. That good thing which was committed to you. Keep. Every generation has a responsibility to learn the truth and to pass the truth on. That good thing which was committed to you, keep it. You keep it. And this very next thing, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1, the continuation factor. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Here's the plan. Here's the plan. Paul had taught Timothy. It was now Timothy's turn to teach others who in turn would teach others. What you have heard from me, you commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also for generations. If you're here tonight, you're being taught the Word of God. Um, I don't boast about that because I know it's God's Word, not mine. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. I know that. Nobody knows that better than me. But I can present to you the truth as it is very obviously given to us in the Word of God. The authority that I have is, whatever it might be, is the authority to proclaim to you the truth of Scripture. And as long as I'm telling you what the Bible says, then that's what authority I have. Nothing else. If it's just what I say, that doesn't amount to much. 
But if I'm taking the Word of God and, and explaining it to you so that you can understand it and teaching it to you so that you can see how that applies in your world and in your life, then I am fulfilling my calling. I'm not going to claim to be like Paul, but I am one of those. If you're here tonight, you've been taught. Many other times you're being taught. But who are you teaching? Um, many of you young men and young ladies here tonight are already older than Timothy was when Paul was telling him to do this. If you're teaching your kids, that's good. But you notice he said, commit that to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Um, you can do this Young people with people who may only be slightly younger than you. You can even do this with your peers because they may just be younger in the faith than you. But you need to do it. Older men, you need to be teaching younger men. Uh, trying to bring them and bring truth and experience into their life. Not just necessarily in the church and in classes, although we do provide for this. That's far from being the only forum where this can go on. This can go on wherever you come into contact with other people. With other uh, church people. People who need the gospel. It's a simple way that this works. Uh, you meet a friend. You find out he doesn't know Jesus. <laughs> They're everywhere. They're everywhere. The old preacher said the woods are full of them. Go get you some. They're everywhere. People who don't know Jesus. Sit down and have a conversation with them. Uh, we have some great people here who are great evangelists. They don't even know they're great evangelists. They'll just talk to anybody about Jesus. Find out how they do it. They've overcome their natural fear. They're talking to people. They're sharing their faith. Lead somebody to Christ. Bring them to church. I'll baptize them. <laughs> it's great. Uh, then take them under your wings. Start teaching them and tell them, hey, go bring your buddies. Because every person that's lost that gets saved has a whole connection, a network of friends out there that's in the same boat they're in. Before you know it, you've got a whole Bible study of people that you can teach. And you say, well, I don't know if I can teach them much. Hey, I promise you, you know a whole lot more about the Bible than those lost people know. Uh, start with Genesis 1-1, John chapter 1 and verse 1. You can teach them. You can share with them. You can build on their life experiences. You can not only do that with those who are younger than you, but you can do that with people who are the same age as you. There's challenges in maintaining a multi-generational church. Uh, but if we're going to do that, how do we do that? That is, we keep reaching people from different generations. And um, we need to keep reaching older people. As they come into our community, as they visit our church, as they come into our neighborhood, invite them. Yes, uh, they're welcome here. We've got a place for them. 
Middle-aged people, yeah, they're welcome here. We've got a place for them. Younger people, absolutely, they're welcome. We've got a place for them. There's challenges. They like to look at us and call us traditional. I hate that moniker myself. What kind of church are we? I'll tell you what kind of church we are. We're a church that embraces all age groups. And we're a church that preaches to all of them and teaches all of them unflinchingly the authoritative, inspired, inerrant Word of God. Unapologetically, this is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. I shouldn't do what it says I shouldn't do. We preach the truth of Scripture. That means we're not going to be for everybody. But we can save some. Pray with me for our, our church as we go forward, move forward, that we'd continue our stand for the Scripture and that God would bless us in our effort to be a multi-generational church. Stand together, please.